Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for March 17th, 2022, the I Call on You to Do More edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm calling on Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School to do more from New Haven. Hello, Emily. More for the Gab Fest, more for you, more for the world, more all three. More for the world, more for the world. Uh, John Dickerson is off this week, but we have making her full Gab Fest debut. She's been... She's been here before in, in smaller roles. Juliet Kayyem. Juliet is the director of the Homeland Security Project and Security and Global Health Project at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. She's also the author of a forthcoming book that we will talk about, The Devil Never Sleeps, Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. Hello, Juliet. Welcome to the GabFest. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. And you're, in, you're probably in Boston or Cambridge or something, right? Cambridge, Massachusetts. Okay. This week, we will talk about the war in Ukraine, the battle for information and misinformation, and why cyber warfare hasn't been as big a deal as people expected. Then, why can't America manage to prepare for the next pandemic? Juliet will explain that, and also we'll talk about her book and how that explains it. Then, the Senate votes for permanent daylight savings time. Does it make sense? I feel like we're going to have a really good argument about this, but I don't even know where everyone falls, so we'll find out. Maybe we all agree that we should just live on a single time zone or something. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. President Zelensky gave an impassioned address to Congress on Wednesday, which was, incidentally, the thing I noticed, but I guess people have pointed out, almost certainly the first time Congress has ever been addressed in a T-shirt, certainly by a world leader. And he called on the United States to do more to help Ukraine, including enforce a no-fly zone. He didn't push on that that hard, but he did lobby for more anti-aircraft weaponry and just more help generally. Uh, We almost certainly will not enforce a no-fly zone. The Biden administration has made that pretty clear, and the rest of the NATO also, I think, feels that as well. But but President Biden is already asking for another $800 million in military aid for Ukraine and Global support for the Ukrainian cause remains at remarkably high levels thanks to Russian incompetence and brutality and the bravery and and daring do of the Ukrainians. So why, Juliet, do you think that at least outside of Russia, Ukraine is doing such a very good job of Mm. telling its story? Why has their message been so effective? Well, they have a good message and a good messenger. So I'll start with the messenger. Uh, Zelensky knows how to use the media, uh, how to use it effectively in terms of targeted messaging. So if you look at the difference between, say, how he spoke to U.S. Congress yesterday, talking to them about their local businesses, right? I mean, it's like, you know, federalism, right? He's like, go back to your districts and tell the companies not to do business with Russia uh, to this morning or um, on Thursday, really going after the Germans who he knew he wasn't going to get much out of in terms of their um, energy dependence on Russia. He's just good at it. And and stealing from a, a column in The Atlantic, Uh, His videos are really not just to galvanize his people, but they're also proof of life videos. They are just terrific and sort of showing uh, that he is there, staying there uh, with him. And then the message is easy because it's morally clear. I mean, I think that the video that he showed to Congress yesterday, you didn't you didn't need captions. I mean, it's just before and after. This is a European country and here's before and everyone is, you know, playing in the playground and here's after. So so uh that that left Putin uh, flat-footed. Uh, he has control over the message in his own country, so we should not think that he's not effective at this. Uh, but in terms of a global narrative that he can control, essentially most of the world, barely China, is even buying it. So as Juliet just just uh, touched on, Emily, the message about what's happening in Ukraine is widespread, 
in our part of the world. It is not, however, widespread in Russia. And in in Putin's Russia, the crackdown on information sources continues, and there there does seem to be wholly propagandistic uh, news at this point in in that country. So, given that misinformation, well, actually, like, let me sp- get back. Is it, are we clear that what Russia is learning is as misinformed as what we think it is? I mean, we're clear that officially what they're learning is as misinformed as we think. But the idea that that's going to have, you know, a co- complete clampdown on their information, it just can't be true. There are too many Russians who can pick up the phone and call someone. The TV worker who got on camera bravely with this statement, you know, and then wound up in this very long interrogation, but was released. She was also contributing to addressing the problem of misinformation. And according to U.S. estimates, more than 7,000 Russian soldiers have died, which is more American troops than we lost in Iraq and Afghanistan the entire time. And you have to think that those deaths are going to start to have an impact and that there's just going to be a sense of reality that hits the Russian people, not to mention all the economic problems they're experiencing. You know, people can't use their bank cards. There are all these stores that are closed. We know that thousands of Russians have left the country, but most of them obviously can't do that. And so I don't know. It just seems like the calculus of what the Russians are going to themselves endure should change. And yet, so far, of course, we don't really see any widespread dissent against Putin. Julia, do you think that it is necessarily follows from the fact that Russians will, will, they will learn about the deaths of their sons and daughters in Ukraine. They will suffer economically. Does it necessarily follow that that means their their support for Putin wavers? I mean, you you have plenty of examples in the world of of countries that were suffering a great deal and during a war where where popular support for the government didn't waver at all. Right, and and, and part of it is is uh, as Emily was saying is just you know to what extent do vast majorities of Russians begin to absorb what's happening as compared to the elite or those who have access to uh, to information uh, from abroad. And there's also the possibility that this unifies Russians more, that they'll be they'll view themselves as the victims of a of the bullying global Western alliance that is depriving them of of uh, of McDonald's, right? And so we we don't know how this is going to factor in. I think the more important metric is actually less the public and instead the military. It is it is whether the operational deficiencies in the war because you cannot you cannot hide that you're losing. I mean in, in other words what the challenges that we're seeing in Ukraine that that the Russian army is experiencing are being felt within the military and the highest levels of the military and that would seem to me to be the area where Putin is going to feel the most pressure, the inadequacies in terms of planning, in terms of deployment, in terms of supply chain, in terms of logistics. It's shocking to most people who are watching it and probably tied to, uh, you know, a sense, uh, you know, just a total miscalculation on what Ukraine and the rest of the world were going to do in response to this. Can, I know this is a really poor analogy and I'm acknowledging up front that it's a really poor analogy, a really poor comparison, but I just want us to hearken back to the bad days of the Iraq war. So we went to war in Iraq. It didn't go well. Uh, we were also torturing people, and that the, the evidence that we were torturing people came out. That war became wildly unpopular around the world, that the people who had originally supported the war at least a bit turned against it it became we be, the nation of the united states became wildly unpopular around the world um and yet we continued to go to war there and we continued to be there for many many years afterwards and the united people in the united states i maybe felt some sense of shame around the torture but certainly there was no complete withdrawal of support or abandonment of of that war um and I'm just wondering what that the tells same, us. Right? I mean, it felt remote to us in this way that was bad and allowed it to continue, but it wasn't a real, you know, immediate presence in our lives. Whereas this is an immediate presence in the lives of the Russians. I mean, I guess, I mean, our reasons for going to that war were bad, but they were sort of deceitfully bad. And this time, they are like nonsensically bad. They're based on a kind of mythos about Russian history that. Putin is deeply invested in, but is 
very backwards thinking in terms of its idea of what Russia is, that Russia depends on swallowing Ukraine to be Russia. Like, I, I know that, you know, I'm a neophyte about this history, and I'm sure it makes sense more, makes more sense to the people who are invested in it does to me, but it is fundamentally backwards looking, right? And it doesn't materially um, improve people's lives. And so those seem like differences to me. Like I'm sure, I'm sure, Emily, that your people were in in the old Russia, Ukraine, whatever the old Russian Ukraine empire was back in the 10th century and 11th century. They were there. They were there. They your people were there. They left, as did yours. <laughs> Seeming like a wise choice right now, as it has for low 60 or 70 centuries, 100 years. Julia, do you think there's any risk of our enthusiastic support for the Ukrainians and Ukrainian cause waning? What would cause it to wane? Will people get tired of, oh, it's Zelensky again? Yeah. I think we're not close, but it could over time. I mean, you know, it's it's their resistance, not ours. Uh, but the the polling and and at least the the political support has not wavered. The political support is somewhere in between more and much more. Let's give Ukraine more things, uh, uh, more ammunitions, more satellites, more drones, and and then to the right of that, much more things like uh, no-fly zone. So the debate is really between that more and much more, and it's just so wild when you think about how quickly everything changed. And I mean, to Emily's point, and we're kind of not feeling it, which will which will be better for support. I mean, it's not Vietnam. We're not having body bags return here. And that goes to sort of Biden's red line about no-fly zones. This, you know, and it's, it's such a ridiculous debate because honestly, what we're delivering to them is killing lots of Russians. Like, this is just a facade about who's flying the airplanes. I mean, we are, you know, eight, however many billion we're sending at this stage is for weaponry that is killing Russian soldiers. And so you, there's this fiction or we create this fiction that, well, a no-fly zone won't engage our pilots. That's true. Uh, but we are actively engaged in honestly killing Russian soldiers. I feel like it's really important to hang on to that one step removal we yes, have. Yes, no, I because, do too. I do too. <laughs> well, because also it's our, um, it's one of our guardrails against a nuclear conflict, which I, you know, I, you're our disaster expert. I mean, I am, I feel like, Nuclear conflict of some sort seems thinkable in this minute in a way that's like totally terrifying to me. And I wonder how you're accounting for that or thinking about it. I mean, look, it, it always has been. I'm not for for no reason then even Putin seems, I mean, he seems wildly out of touch right now, but there there are internal checks in that country as well the 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 red phones are still working we've been told uh the the biggest worry in in the fog of war is of course mistake uh an error uh, someone misinterprets something misreads uh data in the sky and thinks it's something that it is not but we honestly i mean we have so many checks on even correcting errors uh that th- this potential is out there for a limited u- a use strike uh, you know that would impact ukraine but it's it's i would say it's not in my sort of top 10 worries in terms of the slog that we may be facing i mean if he uses nuclear weapons in any fashion limited or all these different variations he also will probably lose the chinese and as that's sort of his only saving grace right now is that China might be willing to support him. He's not totally isolated uh, and he has access to a large market. If he loses that, he's he's doubly in trouble. Is the red phone is a is it red and what does it do? <laughs> it is not. It is not red. It is literally twenty four seven for decades and decades. Just a, a a capacity. It's a military to military, which is more important than you know White House to Kremlin uh, uh, access points. And it is it is just a, a it goes nowhere else than if that phone rings, which is monitored twenty four seven three sixty five. Uh, someone is on the other line to pick up. If they do not pick up. So this is the the sort of Emily bad scenario. If they do not pick up, then you got to be worried that this is a purposeful attack. And I just think that's just still not in the range. And I hate this talk of World War Three and stuff. It is, you know, this is this is something, but you know, we don't need to terrify people more. And it's and it's disruptive. But but you know, all these fears of nuclear or even cyber attacks or whatever. You know, we everyone take it's bad. The reality is bad enough. I just want to clarify. So. 
the the phone call goes from the U.S. to Russia or vice versa. And so then if the adversary doesn't pick up, then that means... That's the assumption. That's the assumption. Yeah. So the the White House has been clear that there is still... And it's military to military. So it is getting out of the high politics that, you know, know, Putin is mad at Biden and won't pick up. It is the belief, whether true or not, and we'll see that the military to military connection is in some ways more cautious vis-a-vis nuclear weaponry than the political to political. Juliet, you just uh, touched on this other topic yeah. that we wanted to get to, which is cyber warfare. So there is has been this kind of surprising other shoe not dropping, perhaps surprising to, to somebody like me who knows nothing about this, which is that I, I think when I thought there was going to be a war in Ukraine, I assumed there would be, you know, Russians are going to make the the water system stop working, power will stop working, there'll be no communications, plus who knows what's going to happen in the U.S., that that supermarkets are going to start stocking cat food instead of canned beans because of uh, Russian cyber hacking here. And yet very little of that has happened. Why hasn't it dropped as far as we know? This is the this is the the hundred thousand dollar question. I mean, no one quite knows because we were all preparing from the you know I come from the homeland side. You just saw the the buildup of trying to prepare companies in particular critical infrastructure supporting Ukraine. For listeners, just to remember, there's a I think the Biden administration and NATO were very very clear and very smart that in the buildup to the physical war, they made it clear to Russia that they were going to view a distinction between what we call disruptive side of her attacks, the kind of crap that we see every day, you know, just this disruption of services, whatever, which, which, you know, or the ransomware and what you would call destructive, which would be an, an attack on critical infrastructure that impacts civilians. In other words, I don't, as a mother, I don't have access to water for my children. And they were so clear about that. They wouldn't say, you know, NATO came out with a statement, we're not going to tell you where that line is between disrupt- disruptive and destructive, but it exists. That may have put uh, Putin on a little bit of defense in terms of, okay, well, because we can't control these things, I better, uh, I better, you know, not use it as a tool. But of course, the, the, other, the other explanation is that he's really not as good at it as we always thought. I mean, this is the same with the misinformation. Like maybe we just, because we weren't fighting him for so many years in the Trump years, he seemed bigger than he was. It's a little bit like Trump. Now that Trump is out of office, wow, he's, you know, his candidates aren't winning and he's sort of a, you know, whatever, but, you know, he can't fill a room, right? Trump can't fill a room now. And so I sort of wonder that as well, but it is something that, you know, and it, it isn't over till it's over, but it's something that everyone is looking at. Did you change your passwords? Dual often, I'm joking. (laughs) They both, I should say they both went totally. Oh my God. (laughs) Let's not get started on that dreadful topic. I, you know, this has made me think back to the Russian disinformation campaign about the American election in 2016 and remember something that I don't think I ever said at the time, but when you looked at their actual interventions on Facebook, they were pretty like ham-fisted and clumsy and they weren't all that distinctive in the sense that there were lots of American right-wing groups that were doing the same thing. And so, um, I mean, you know, I think they all fed into each other, and it's obviously uh, bad for foreign governments to be interfering um, in American elections in that way. But I do wonder if it just seemed... Uh, more effective than it was because there was actually American propaganda that was doing a better job that affected people's thinking. Right. We were also super susceptible to it. We were yes. all welcoming. It was every, the, or the, the audience for it really wanted it. They welcomed it. Whereas I don't think yeah. there's much audience for people welcoming ransomware attacks on themselves or welcoming their water service being disrupted. I don't think there's a lot of people who, who would like to see that. Ju- yeah. Juliet, can, just digging in on this, some of the reading I've done suggests, well, there is that the criminal hacking coming out of Russia and out of that part of the world is pretty good. Like they're good at good at ransomware and holding a hospital's data hostage and things like that. But that, but that that's separate from whatever the government capacity is. And we shouldn't necessarily assume that the government capacity is great. That's right. But I think think that's right. I think that's right because we haven't seen it. I mean, in other words, uh, the, the, let's just think of like, you know, the sort of big events in terms of ransomware or cyber breaches. They've always been related to privacy. They've always been, or, or ransomware. The colonial pipeline is a, I really blame the victim in that stage, that colonial pipeline, even if they had their cyber 
uh, networks had been attacked. There was no reason for them to have to shut down all the pipelines that happened last year here in the U.S. And in fact, there's evidence that suggests the ransomware attackers were shocked that that was their response. So, I mean, there's just no evidence that they have the capacity to do that. We always hear that they're lurking. The Russians are lurking or some element of Russia is lurking in our critical infrastructure. But, you know, we've built things for better or for worse, and it's not perfect, but we have built things with layered defenses so that even entry into, say, one part of a cyber network does not give you access to the on-off switch. We have redundancies in systems we've learned how to build. So I, I'm beginning to think that that's what it is, or possibly he just is very nervous that Article 5 will be invoked, which is the self-defense attack against one country is attack against all, um, uh, if there is a uncontrolled, destructive cyber attack in a, in a NATO nation. Slate Plus members, you get so much good stuff for being a Slate Plus member. You get bonus segments on this show. You also get exclusive episodes on other shows like Slow Burn and Amicus. You get no ads on any Slate podcast, and you get unlimited reading on the Slate site. And it's really cheap. So why not become a member? And I would note that membership in particular brings you bonus segments on the GabFest. And we have just been having a blast in recent months. The world the world is dark and dingy and, and gruesome. But we've been digging into sort of some more pleasurable and philosophical questions. So I, I think you, you will enjoy those discussions. Today, we're going to talk about what, what do we do and think about when we're happy. And if you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura Frames in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura Frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura Frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura Frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura Frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So... First, it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is at most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Juliet Kayyem has a new book out, and it's about how we live through disaster, live in an age of disaster. The Devil Never Sleeps, great title, Juliet. Learning to Live in an Age of Disasters. And this book comes out, of course, in the middle and beginning, who, who knows, some stage of a pandemic. We've had this this vast pandemic. It has killed a million Americans, millions and millions more people worldwide. And right at this minute, as your book comes out next week, Congress is is discussing how to fund our continuing pandemic response. So Senate Republicans are blocking $15 billion in spending to restore low stocks of vaccines and medicines and tests. And then there was a $65 billion proposal from the Biden administration last fall to prepare more systematically for the next pandemic. That is not even getting a sniff. That is not even getting a hearing. Even that $65 billion, some experts say, oh, that was totally inadequate. This pandemic is going to cost the U.S. $16 trillion, as well as, of course, those million lives. Juliet, why are we so unable to prepare as a nation? Or maybe we are actually preparing as a nation, and, I, and this, is just, this is just the hype monsters getting upset because they didn't get an extra billion for their pet project. Uh, so there, there is an element uh, to uh, some of the requests for this funding to link pandemic preparedness and response to overall public health neglect uh, over the last decades, right? So everyone is going to use this as a gravy train. I hate to, you know, sort of admit it. It was true. Honestly, it was true in counterterrorism after 9-11. Everyone got their pet, you know, issue. I need this new law. I need this, you know, this new car, this new My new, my, our, my emergency response RV is great. I know. I was. I think. I. I think I approved that when I was in government. You look great in the, behind the wheel too. But uh, so there's this, you know, idea of this pandemic neglect cycle that we, you know, constantly are are are, are going to neglect and then and then be be victim to it. Th- this debate over money really has to do with how much money you want to sort of support the overall public policy goal of better public health. You know, dealing with inequities, dealing with uh, neglect, dealing with other public health harms, or if you just want a focused COVID response, which would then get to things like, you know, buying more antibodies, more treatments, testing, as we're potentially facing a a new variant, the BA2, uh, which is in Europe now and coming here. The Republicans have no number that they're proposing. They literally just want hands done. That And part of their argument, to be fair, is that there's so many, there's so much surplus money from other distributions. And so I think there'll be some number in the six or seven billion dollar range and everyone will figure out uh, what to pay for. But this cycle is is true of all disasters that we are continuously in them. That's the theme of the book. And thank you for for plugging, which is um, we're never before and after. We always think that we're before and after. And I think we really do need to rethink disaster management in an age, we're certainly in it, but we've always been in it, um, where the devil never sleeps, that that you can think you're done and you're not done. So that goes to uh, persistent and consistent uh, preparedness. Uh, I want to remind people, though, about the panic and whether we're we're giving up too soon. I know that there are systemic issues uh, about equity uh, and and other issues, and whether we have too much reliance on the on the vaccine. But the the infection numbers really don't tell us much anymore. They really, I mean, the the point of treatments and vaccines and everything else is is that we can get this thing and 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 a large majorities of the population can survive. That's unlike uh, the Spanish flu. I, my book is a lot about history. People forget, People think the Spanish flu ended in, in 1919, the great, we're not supposed to call it the Spanish flu, but the great uh, pandemic of uh, 1917 to 1919. There was actually a fourth wave in 1920 that killed in some communities more people than the second or third waves combined. But the world had moved on. Now, that was horrible, but they didn't have a vaccine at that time. So we really do that there'll be additional waves does, of infections does not tell me much about what, how I should live and, and whether I should live uh, like I did in 2019. The part of this that about kind of linking funding requests to the disaster that can seem like everyone is just um, using it as an excuse, I 
In this case, because we have underfunded public health infrastructure to such a destructive degree, I feel like I'm all for it. Like, this is a whole sector of the government that is, like, in the corner, in the shabby office, um, doesn't have the amount of money, the amount of platform that it should have in the government. And so if what we could get out of this is a public health system that functioned better, that just, you know, worked for all the times that are not the before or the after, but just like the continuing on part, that seems to me like it would be a huge gain and it would address some of the inequities that you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, and I I just want to call out, I know you're about to say something, Julia, but I just want to call out to that magnificent piece by Atul Gawande in The New Yorker a few months ago about the Costa Rican experiment where Costa Rica essentially decided to spend a huge percentage of its health funding on public health. And as opposed to taking care of individuals, you think first the unit of analysis is the helping take care of the public. And and that investment has paid off many mm-hmm. times over where you have a country which which is a relatively poor country that has a life much longer, happier, healthier lives are led in Costa Rica than are led on average in the United States. And that's just shocking. And it's a, it's a, it has to do with how public health was prioritized. Yeah. yeah. I've been, I go through a, a, a existential angst on this because I do come from the preparedness, you know, sort of Homeland Security side of this and working with and helping uh, uh, you know, in terms of planning, both in the private and public sector over the last two years, working with a lot of doctors, it's just, there's just a fundamental, you know, I don't know what you would call it, professional gap between how we think about things. And I, to put it crudely, people like me think in bulk, you know, how do you move stuff from point A to point B? Uh, uh, how do you get lots of people vaccinated and not worry about the percentages that aren't? You're just moving stuff very, very quickly. And I think that is good. But I do think that this idea that you're sort of, we still have, you know, immunocompromised kids under five. My kids are older. I don't know what that experience is like to have kids that can't be vaccinated uh, and, and, and disinformation, which is, which is essentially killing people because they're not getting vaccinated. Um, That is what public health officials think about is the, is the floor. Um, And I think people like me think about, you know, can we reach some ceiling and it's a gap. I don't know how to solve it. And I think that the funding uh, uh, debate sort of goes to that is, is, are we going to, are we going to raise the floor? as Emily was saying. And, and it's just, I don't know what the answer is. To, Juliet, going to your book generally, yeah. going to disaster more generally, obviously when bad things, when you have a disaster which kills a million people or you have a, a tsunami that disables a nuclear power plant and causes a critical meltdown, you notice the disaster is a disaster and you feel it as a disaster. But surely there are lots of things which turn out not to be disasters because we have done good work on it. So what, yeah. what are the what what are the success stories? The near misses. Tell yeah, the us near about, misses. Or, tell or, us. or no, they or they are. This is I mean, this is the book, right? They're they're or they're they're they. Okay, so basically, the argument of the book is we need to learn to fail safer, right? I mean, in other words, we have to anticipate that the systems will go down because the way we talk about disasters and 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 wring our hands about disasters is we either think about the past, like how did this happen? How could you know people be so negligent and build nuclear facilities? there. Or we talk about that helpful word, which I, you know, whatever, it's like, you know, my great grandchildren, resiliency, which I don't mean to be mean about, it, but that seems so far away, right? And so there's like this moment today uh, that we can uh, be prepared for, which is the nuclear facility that you haven't heard about. So there was a nuclear facility down um, the road. We're, we're talking uh, the day after another major earthquake in the Fukushima area. Um, I'm talking about the 2011 uh, uh, earthquake and tsunami. Fukushima did not plan to fail safely. They had uh, no preparation. They they had a very hierarchical response plan, so they always had to go back to Tokyo before they could do anything. There was a nuclear facility down the street, not down the street, a couple miles down the street, it was hit harder. Uh, they had spent a lot of time on learning to fail safely. In other words, there would be a disruption. Success would be, can you stop 
what we call the cascading losses. Can you just make things less bad? And they did. And we don't even talk about that other nuclear facility. Instead, we worry about nuclear safety in ways that I think are irrational uh, because we do know how to make nuclear facilities safe. So uh, learn to fail safely uh, with the expectation that you're going to just get hit every day. There's lots of pieces to preparedness, but in this case, it was it was the, the What's capacity another example besides that one? Of, where, of something where where we didn't have the disaster because yeah we, and and the, so I I think it's so depressing to live in this yeah. world of where where every system seems broken and we're constantly yeah. failing so just t- tell me another well, one me tell me you, another like, story no I will I will and I'll I'll, I'll I'll on our chatter I'll have another one but so how do you think about the Boston Marathon attack I mean I would think it's helpful to hear like is that was that a horror, a blip. I mean, is that, would you view that as a disaster or? Uh, no, I mean. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. I mean, then let, let me give you the statistics. Horrifically, three people died at the finish line. Two hundred ninety-seven people lost arm, lost leg, lost hand, lost foot. Uh, other damages were taken to area hospitals in three different states. I used to oversee the states, uh, the state, the Commonwealth uh, response planning. Uh, there had been a lot of effort put into the capacity to pivot if you had a mass casualty event, and not a single person who made it to a hospital died. That's success, right? I mean, I wouldn't say that's a good day and it's hard to say publicly, but my measure of success is were things less bad than they might have been than if you had had 200 dead because you had no response capacity. A lot of effort went into that, a lot of luck. I don't deny that, um, but everyone pivoted in real time. So part of that was a lot of that training. So that's another story. I got lots in the book, uh, but no, I mean, the book is not fatalistic. It's just, look, you, there are the things we're not hearing about end up being our, our lessons learned, right? In other words, how can we do better? I mean, that's such a good point that the tragedy is this, you know, terrible bombing set off by human malevolence. And then the state in that case actually does like a very competent job of dealing with the response, which is what it can do, right? It can't prevent a, you know, malevolent or mentally ill person from setting off a bomb, horrible as that is. It can't completely prevent it. That's just at odds with our idea of a free society, the kind of surveillance you'd need to completely prevent it. But then the effective aftermath gets kind of buried because the recognition of the tragedy is uppermost, and it should be. And, you know, it scares people, but actually there's this sort of reassuring backstop that we just don't really talk about but yeah to, to close this out i just want to actually to paraphrase donald rumsfeld that you kind of go you 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 fight a disaster with the country you have not the country you yeah. want and we actually live in a pretty politically divided country right now a liberty inclined country people value their own individual liberty to to over the benefit of the public and a country with a significant distrust of experts and a country where there's not a lot of public trust right. so doesn't that Juliet, worry you that our capacity to prepare for these things and respond is going to be diminished because we're just going to we're just going to be less good at those government pieces, less good at the the mass scale response than we could be if there were if we were a different nation. Right. It is. I mean, you know, this is like, you know, the architecture of preparedness. How do we prepare in this country? I mean, the good news is, is that most of our response is actually local. So you kind of do. I mean, I know local debates are are pretty heated, uh, but most mayors recognize what it means to support your emergency management team. And and most states get it in terms of sharing resources. We saw we saw that fall apart in covid because it was Donald Trump who basically tried to create tension in a architecture governance system that really didn't need it. I mean, in other words, he went after the governors and and um, and so that sort of local ingenuity does give me hope. There's also the bottom line for for CEOs. They do think or they should think about this in terms of their their own planning. And so you do see companies taking it more seriously now. I was very involved with the BP oil spill and I talked to the oil industry all the time. I said, what's the cost of the next oil spill? It's not less than $40 billion, right? Because you know, it, it, the next time this something as that bad happens, the next company is going to have to contribute as much as BP did. And so they start to see 
the business necessity of investments in better safety and security and things like that. So not ideal, but definitely my goal was we do have agency. I do feel like some of the things that we hear, you know, like, oh, there's nothing we can do and everything's bad and horrible and whatever. Like we have agency. And so I was just trying to highlight when agency works. All right, let's pivot from natural disaster to a man-made disaster. The Senate passed by unanimous consent this week a bill to have a universal daylight savings. This bill would need to pass the House and be signed into law by the president. But if it were to do that, it would mean we would not move our clocks forward in the spring or back in the fall. We would instead live in the state we are living in for most of the year now, for about eight months of the year now, where the clock is an hour ahead of where it is naturally. I'm saying naturally in quotes, since all time is a human construct. But the clock would be an hour ahead of where it is naturally with it the sun setting later and rising later. So your evenings would be longer and your mornings would be start later. Light would come later in your morning. So I know there's only one correct position here, but I'm going to outline, I think, what the three positions are. There's one position is daylight savings like we have now, which is that you have this transition in the spring and fall. We're going to talk about the bad effects of that transition. I think it's pretty clear there are a lot of bad effects from doing that transition. But where in the summer you get these longer evenings and in the winter the day uh, the sun rises a little bit earlier so that you don't have so much time in the dark in the morning. So that's we'll call that the, the current position. There's now the position which is always daylight savings, which is what the Senate has just passed, what Marco Rubio is pushing, which is that we will always be in the state where the sun is setting as late as it can and but it's also rising later so the mornings winter mornings will be terrible then there's the position where it's always standard time which is where time is as it should be the evenings are shorter but the mornings start earlier the sun the sun rises and earlier so emily what is the correct position I thought that I was pro-keeping daylight savings time because I'm much more of an afternoon and evening person. I don't really care if it's darker in the morning. And then reading about this, I kind of changed my mind. So as you suggested, the switching is bad, right? It's associated with basically sleep deprivation and a kind of jarring adjustment to people's schedules that causes more accidents, Can we pause in the middle of this, actually, just so we can talk? Have you had a terrible week because of this? I have had a really bad week. Really? Um, I might have slept like shit this week. I've slept so badly this week. That's really interesting. Yeah, I actually have a cold. I don't think I have COVID. I took a test. uh, So I've been affected by that, and I can't really separate them. But yeah, I think that actually, like, it has a meaningful effect on people. And I ran into a couple of friends with small children who have really been complaining about, you know, kids don't just magically sleep at different hours. And that meant that they were up at five in the morning, which is hard. What's the Kayam response to this? Have you slept okay oh, this week? Yeah, I have. I, I mean, Emily, did I hear you're getting a dog? Yeah, you're, you're. Yeah, well, then you're 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 going to change because walking a dog in the morning in the dark is not fun. So maybe you'll become a morning person again. You know, it's you I. I was looking after a dog all fall and winter, but the dog left it as in the new year, and so yeah. the the times when I like the most did not want to get up early to walk the dog didn't happen. So you're totally yeah. right. My sleep has been fine. I mean, I, you know, my sleep is always, I'm always a morning person. I, I, I like waking up before the family wakes up. So I wake up early anyway, so I'm, I'm fine. But I, I like Emily, I, I have changed my mind as well, or I don't know if I changed my mind. I would say I always thought daylight savings because I love late days and I love sunsets and I will that that last Sunday, that first Sunday, when you sort of look outside and it's like six ten, and you're like, oh, spring and summer, yeah. I know, and yeah. spring and summer, and it's like that that feeling alone might might make me feel better. But I'm 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 for the status quo now. I know that there's Wait. disruptive, which is eight months daylight yeah. savings, four months. Uh, standard to catch up with the or catch up or slow down. I don't know which way it works uh, with the sun and that basically do. I, I'm for a do nothing Senate. That's what I'm for. Wait, so I Emily, you, I, I interrupted that. you. I interrupted no, you. No, it's fine. 
fine. I mean, the only other thing I was going to say is that um, I'm getting suspicious because now it seems like Marco Rubio is leading the charge because Florida, a very southern state that's not, you know, hugely affected by this, by the change Rubio is proposing, would benefit a lot. And the golf lobby in particular wants to have longer afternoons, thinks it's better for the industry, that there's this whole sort of, you know, recreational entertainment side of um, uh, yeah, industry and lobby that is pushing this. And I just started to feel a little bit like, wait a second, maybe I'm falling into that trap. It's so weird because, I mean, the amount of light is the same, right? Nothing, there's actually no different. It's just the way right. we respond to it. I, as somebody who plays golf, in fact, played golf in Florida two weeks ago, mm. I played golf as early as I could in the morning because I yeah. love to play golf early in the morning. It's so nice to play golf early in the morning. I mean, the other thing about this is the real, the biggest problem I think we have societally with the clock is the time at which school starts in the morning, which is way too early. It is terrible, especially for adolescents. And that is something we have total control over. We don't need to do a single thing to standard time or daylight savings time in order to address that. Well, except when you, if you had permanent daylight savings, schools would start, let's say schools start at whatever, 8.30 that 8.30 under standard daylight savings in winter is a terrible time to start. It's yeah. completely in the dark. Those so kids you would dark. start them at 8.30 probably anyway. It's still right. too early. Right. Yeah. right. Then you just have to change the workday, though. I mean, the, the ca- I'm with you. The casualness that a Marco Rubio is discussing this, like, well, then kids just should go to school later. It's like, well, you know, parents well, work parents and they need that. I mean, it's, like, it's, it's you know, so the it, I'm, I do have suspicions about David's famous golf lobby which is promoting this so that david can get out on the no on they the wanted to play golf later i want to play golf earlier oh earlier oh yeah. i see how it works yeah. they, it's they, the they, oddball in the story you want to be yeah. out there in the I've, dark I've talked about at 6 a.m yeah exactly i've talked about golf longer than i should ever talk about golf wait emily i i assumed when you set up this topic that you were going to come in with this resonant loud defense of we need permanent daylight savings so it's always so it's always these long evenings. But you I haven't even come with it. I was thinking I was going to do that too, but I wavered. You know, the other thing I love about this topic is it's about Congress just like, or I mean only one part of Congress, but Congress just suddenly doing this dramatic thing out of nowhere, this whole idea that there's this secret Congress, that the only way things get done is when people aren't paying attention. The idea that they did this on a voice vote is so crazy. Like I just, that yeah. part of it, I was really taken with, even though um, I realized that's like a footnote. And we've done it before, you know. Yeah, yeah. In the seventies, you know, in 19- and people didn't like. Well, you're it. talking about the 1974 oil crisis when right. Congress decided to suspend daylight savings time to save energy, and polls suggested that um, in I think November, December, at the very beginning, people thought it was a great idea, and then a few months later, they had completely soured on it. Yeah, I mean, it's it expired. I like the idea that this was a vote by unanimous consent, which included, that means the senators from Arizona, a state which famously does not have daylight savings, voted for it. Like, and Kristen Cinema, in a, among her many other sins, was asked about it. And she's like, it sounds great. But her peep own state, the people of her own state are like, we don't want it. We don't oh, want daylight yeah. savings. So what we if, do we think states should be able to decide themselves? No. I mean, I realize no. that would be pandemonium, but I kind the, of just too hard to keep track of. They're not allowed no. to, but Arizona, I guess, must be grandfathered in. I know. It's Florida, weird that Florida. they're not allowed to, and yet Arizona. Yeah. Florida has proposed this. I mean, they have a law which would get rid of daylight savings, but they are not allowed to enforce it. They can't. Congress. Right. It's a national thing. And yet Sorry. Arizona yeah. continues along its merry way. But you think it would just be too confusing if things were yeah. like two or three or four hours off and you had to keep track. Right. Well, just think of interstate travel. I already find the time zones so confusing. I guess that's true. Yeah. I just, the time zones drive me. I never remember like which way to go, who's where. Well, there, oh, there was man. a really good. Atlanta always confuses me. What do you mean? It's in the Atlanta, Eastern time zone. Isn't it Eastern? That doesn't feel like it should be. What? what? It's a it's in a it's state in it's Georgia. It's in a Georgia, which is literally saying. borders the Atlantic Ocean. I'm just what do you saying, want? I, I open myself up to you guys, and you attack me. Oh my God, I'm Atlanta! This is your my, sense this of is geography life. is rivaling mine. I feel. I mean, I think when you say like, "Oh, what time zone is Chicago in?" Then you can. That's like okay, no, or what? The or one Detroit? That I feel like it's What's Central Detroit? Time. Like Chicago's in the Midwest. I get mixed up with like Ohio, Tennessee. Yeah, Ohio. I'm sure. just being sure. honest. Just being honest. I knew. I know Chicago. 
I, <laughs> I, um, going back to daylight savings, Juliet, your position is okay. Although that's the harm of switching is kind of a pain. And I yeah. actually think that the benefit of that, that one day in spring, that Sunday where it's like, oh, yes, it's 610 and the, the, the lampant light is shining through your, onto your delicious iced tea is far outweighed by that moment on the first work day in the fall when you go back to work on that Monday and it's, you know, at five o'clock, it's dead dark and you're like, oh, God. Yeah. That yeah. loss, I, that loss I is agree. terrible. So you guys um, are both coming down in favor of the status quo. No, I'm in favor of I'm in favor of permanent standard time. Standard I'm a morning time. I'm a morning person. Yeah. I just want it to be get light earlier and I and go to and then it can get dark anytime as oh far as I'm God, concerned. So as long as it gets like summer, earlier. it would get dark at like between six thirty and eight. Oh, yeah, eight. Like, yeah, but you know what? You get up really early. Like that's ugh, I, I get not. up really and early. You play golf. And you play golf. This is we've got yeah. the David Plotz lifestyle for the new standard. I can't wait. I'm, I I cannot wait. I, I I loved that Florida time zone. My girlfriend and I we went out to dinner at five. It's like that's perfect. What what eating dinner at five? Lunches should be at noon. No later than noon is when lunch. David, is. you always seemed wiser than your age, but now I realize you know you just you have been an old man. I'm an old man. For like yeah, exactly. you're already already praising the five p.m. dinner and golf golf in Florida. Exactly. Just just. Peel the I, Band-Aid and head down there. Let's final voice vote here. Um, uh, so, Kayam is for the status quo. Emily? I'm going to say permanent daylight savings. Even though I see the counter arguments, I'm still going for it. Okay. I'll be Mar- Marco Rubio's ally. Permanent standard time. Um, but I, I feel I was moved by your, your uh, plea, Juliet. So I, I, could, I could live with the status quo. That's okay. Let's go to cocktail chatter. I feel like we're already in cocktail chatter. I feel like we, we were all in the state of having had many Even cocktails. It, I haven't had breakfast. It does feel a little bit like the cocktail hour. Emily, what's your cocktail chatter? I'm going to bring down the mood. You know that scene in Mary Poppins where everyone's having a tea party on the ceiling and then they start talking about sad things and it gets a little grim? Okay, so the Republicans, understandably, have been looking for material to go after Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson about her hearings for the Supreme Court begin next week. And Josh Hawley, senator from Missouri, has decided to go on an attack about Jackson's record on child pornography charges and sentencing when she was a judge. So this goes to her time on the U.S. Sentencing Commission and then when she was on the bench. And Holly's arguing that she was letting off these child pornography offenders and convicts by shortening the sentences that they were getting through the federal sentencing guidelines. So this is a hard topic. Nobody really wants to defend people who consume child pornography. I don't think it's a victimless crime. I wrote about survivors of mass child pornography, meaning image this went everywhere, and it's a totally devastating experience. However, it is also true that federal sentencing about this goes by count, by the quantity of material you have. And because of the internet, people often accidentally, as well as on purpose, download large quantities once they start going in this direction. And it does lead to these incredibly long federal sentences. It's a pretty easy crime to prove. And the last thing I just want to say about this is that, you know, Yes, this is like a terrible predilection that leads to great harm to kids. That is real. It is also true that some of the people who consume child pornography have autism spectrum disorders and other disabilities, and that does not really get taken account when they are getting charged and sentenced. So I just feel like it's going to be interesting to see exactly how the Democrats figure out to respond to this, but I would just like to keep in mind this context. I've had so many physicians over the years asked me to write about this issue because they have seen patients get caught up in just these incredibly punitive sentences. And it's a tough topic, but there is a lot more to it than Josh Hawley's version of it. Mm. Juliet, what's your chatter? So I've been thinking about the Suez Canal because of the news out of the Chesapeake that the Ever Forward, uh, a cousin of the Ever Given, uh, which stopped the Suez, uh, is stuck there. It is not disrupting flow. It will probably get dislodged relatively easy. But just to remind folks that uh, about a year ago, it was the Ever Given uh, stopped the Suez. Uh, the the company names everything ever because uh, it's just code word for present in maritime 
and navigation talk. So they have the ever giant, the ever goods, the uh, the ever genius, which is my favorite. Uh, the ever stuck it should probably be the the company's motto. Uh, but this is goes, David, your point about sort of some good news. When when that happened at the Suez, there were about. Well, there were a couple hundred ships waiting to get through the Suez, uh, which you know basically connects Asia to Europe uh, and constitutes about 20% of our global trade. There was almost a negligible disruption to our supply chain. Any supply chain issues we're having now have to do with manufacturing, not with transportation. So why is that? Why was this not a disaster? It's a little story that I love that uh, actually between 1967 and 1975, the Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War, much of the Suez was closed. Uh, Egypt closed it on one side, Israel closed it on the other. Some ships got captured inside. They came to be known as the Yellow Fleet. Someone needs to make a movie with Tom Hanks out of this. And and ships, the the industry learned to head to Africa again uh, and to go south to the Cape of uh, Good Hope. Uh, It's a harder trip. It's longer. It's more dangerous. But they had calculated that into their planning so that when this happened to the Suez, they knew exactly what to do. So in the world in which I measure success, by did worse things happen. This reminded me uh, what happened uh, with the Everford and the Chesapeake today reminded me that that actually planning, pivoting, uh, ability to absorb the kind of disruptions that are inevitable in the kind of societies we have, there can be uh, uh, success out of that. Ever forward. What a great name for both. Yes. Never forward. (laughs) My chatter is about a really moving and sad story in the New York Times uh, about a historian, a Dutch historian named Wally DeLang, or Wally DeLang maybe, uh, who has tracked down what happened to 400 Dutch Jews who disappeared early in the, the Nazi occupation of the Netherlands. And there's this famous episode where the Dutch Jews rose up in a, not in a huge way, not in a kind of massive way, but rose up against Nazi new Nazi rules about working and where they had to live and caused some chaos and I think killed killed one Dutch Nazi. The Germans, with their typical brutality, responded by snatching four hundred Dutch men at random off the street, Dutch Jewish men off the street, and rounded them up. And no one knew what happened to them. They they sort of vanished. And this Dutch historian kind of figured out what had happened to them. Only two of these men ended up surviving the war. They were almost all young men, and they, some of them, more than 100 of them, ended up as some of the first victims of Nazi gassing experiments. The Nazis were doing experiments on a, in a Dutch castle with gassing prisoners, and many of them ended up at slave labor camps. Almost the most poignant detail of it is that the Nazis, with their kind of gift for uh, cruel bureaucratic efficiency, did not they actually reported on the deaths of many of these men back back to mm. their family so they would send a note back to the family reporting that they had died of multiple sclerosis or in some cases died of diseases that men don't even get that only women get and it was just you know, here we have a cause of death it was always natural causes and of course these men turned out to have been murdered but the nazis you know just just in order to to mess with the minds of the the Dutch families would record it and and send a note back. Um, anyway, it's a really moving and grim story. Listeners, you have sent us excellent chatters about all kinds of wonderful things. There was a great chatter that you sent us, which we're not going to do, about an Australian choir that sings Russian songs. I really like that one. But you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. You tweet them to us at, at slategabfest. And this week's chatter comes from Jonas Barsiaskas. Hi, my chatter is about a case that will come before the United States Supreme Court this autumn, where it will hear the case of Brackeen versus Halland, which could redefine the constitutionality of the Indian Child Welfare Act, or ICWA, and threaten tribal sovereignty. Protecting Native American youth is a huge deal, especially with the ongoing discovery of mass graves at boarding schools. But there's so much more involved. This Supreme Court case isn't just about Native American youth. It's also potentially an attack on tribal mineral rights and ultimately Native American sovereignty. It's no coincidence that the white family that initiated the case in Texas after adopting Native children is backed pro bono 
by big oil lawyers, including a firm called Gibson Dunn, who normally have no interest in these matters. If ICWA falls, it could become the first domino in a series of native rights rollbacks. There's a great podcast, This Land, that provides a history of the case. Love your podcast. Keep up the good work, guys. That's our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategapfest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Juliet Kayam, whose book The Devil Never Sleeps is out March 29th, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? We have a lovely question today. This is a Jocelyn. Jocelyn, Jocelyn, you are a sneakily philosophical person. Killing you are, it with the Slate Plus questions. You have, you really have, keep bringing great Slate Plus questions. Makes me curious about your internal life. So Joss's question to us is, what do you think about when you're happy or to cheer yourself up? And she offers a relationship, a past adventure, a book, call someone, send a gift, receive a gift. Do you ever send yourself flowers? So uh, who wants to go first? Emily, do you ever send yourself flowers? I never send myself flowers. I basically never send anyone flowers, which is a terrible thing to admit. But Does your I... husband ever get you flowers? Once in a while. We're not big gift givers. We have like a sort of anti-gift culture, which I don't actually think is a good thing, but it's how I grew up. However, I was going to say a nice thing about how I grew up, which is that I have a strong memory of my mother talking about the robins coming back in the spring, just like looking out the window and the importance of taking pleasure in very small things. And she didn't say this part of it, but I think it's also like very small things in nature or very small things over which you have no control. So they just remind you that, you know, the planet's rhythms are eternal, or at least so we hope, and that whatever is going on in your own head, it is a very small part of this larger context, and that you can use a really tiny thing like a leaf falling or um, a flower blooming or a robin showing up or anything like that to try to jog your own mood. And so I look for small things for taking pleasure in small things, like a really good cup of coffee can also do it for me. But is that is that to reinforce happiness or to cheer yourself up? It's more to cheer myself up. It's more to kind of get out of a sense of the doldrums to just remember that there always are things around you and they don't have to be big things that can make a difference in how you feel. Oh, I, I like that too. I, I mean, I can't say I was always like this, but now that I'm older, I, I definitely get the rhythms of mood and how they're related to weather and stress and, and, and fortunate enough to probably think that they're not going to last that long. So my fixes are very quick. I mean, I, like Emily, I run and if I can get a run in or some form of exercise, because sometimes when I get down, it's a vicious cycle where then you don't move. And then, you know, so I just sort of, even when I don't feel like it sort of force myself either outside or if the weather's not good, do something like that. And music for me, like just goofy music can often, you know, put me in a good mood. The other day I was sort of just. That is just a little tease, a little taste of the Slate Plus segment for this week. If you want to hear more, become a member. Go to slate.com slash Plus and become a member today. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two to one margin. In the late 1970s, Cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. 
This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.